0: Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting alongside Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, we are going to be in New York, or we are in New York, depending on when this podcast is uploaded. We've been just making so much content lately, so I don't know when this is going up, but November 11th. Through the 15th, we are going to be there. If you are interested in learning about our money management services, our investing firm, either through the managed accounts or the fund, uh, reach out to invest at focuscompounding.com. If you want to get more information on it in general, go to Focus Compounding, click that invest with us link, and you'll see our presentation there. Also, if you're not following me on Twitter, you definitely should be at Focus Compound. If you like the content that we do here, Everything we produce goes out through Twitter. So that's just sort of the best place to get, I guess, a feed of all of the content that Mr. Jeff and myself uh, create. So in today's video, we are going to be talking about something that we've never spoke about before and probably something that I don't know if anyone else has done a podcast on before, and that is bargaining power and businesses that have bargaining power as a source of moat or just high-qualityness of a company, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. So you know, what do you typically look for? So I guess if you're reading a 10K, What stands out to you or where you kind of just say, ah, they have like strong bargaining power either with their suppliers or with their customers or how do you typically think about that?
1: Um, So bargaining power is probably one of the most important things I'm interested in with a company and definitely one of the most important ones that aren't a quantitative thing that I'm looking at. So uh, I'd say one of the best indicators of bargaining power would be if um, how... I want to know under what circumstances is negotiations for the sale of the product done. And I mean that very broadly. So, like, I was looking at a company recently which uh, does bowling alleys and things like that. And it it has arcade games there. It sells um, food and drink. And it talks about dwell time, how long uh, people stay at the site. And that's very important how long people are staying there so that you can sell them all these extra things. Sure. That's part of it. So, the bargaining power that you have, say, at a uh, movie theater, having someone buy a soda from you uh, is very different than what you would have in selling that same Coke or whatever in a supermarket where they're um, much more aware of the price and they're in a different uh, way of thinking about that. So, it's really the negotiations that way. Mm -hmm. Now, on the negative side, you often have, um, you, you will see talk about customer concentration. So like we were looking at a company recently that uh, over 40% of their sales are to Walmart. And that would mean that Walmart would be pretty um, focused on getting that price down. And so there is a lack of bargaining power on that side Though they might have it over their suppliers.
0: Does that scare you when you look at companies that have pretty significant, I guess, customer concentration? Because they
1: could be, I mean, kind of like always have a gun to their head type of situation. Right. It it depends. It, It could be. Um, what tends to happen though in a lot of cases is that th- although there's high customer concentration from their perspective um, it, for some good companies there's also a lot of concentration in terms of the supplier uh, the other way around so for instance Walmart may be buying most of their goods in that category from that company so although it's true that Walmart uh, is a very big buyer from them they're also a huge supplier to Walmart the concern would be more in cases where um, they have other options in that product line you know mm-hmm. so like. like. Like, you know, there's companies that supply private label to Walmart, but Walmart doesn't have, for some things, realistic options for other private label things. So, for instance, like some soda stuff, I don't think they have realistically other people can provide nationwide uh, enough private label stuff for them. Um, You know, uh, Coke sells a lot through Costco, but Costco can't really keep Coke out. Um, And so, you know, there's bargaining power sometimes in – I mean – The risk stuff will just tell you their customer concentration, but it won't go into enough detail about how much that customer is buying from them. Sometimes it will tell you how long they've been buying from them and things like that. But I think that the fact that you sell a lot of... Um, you know that Haynes sells a lot through Walmart or something, or that um, razors are sold a lot. You know that Gillette or, Energi- uh, or Schick or Chick or whoever is selling a lot through Walmart isn't necessarily a big deal because if you go there, there's not a lot of different options for Walmart to not carry those things.
0: So, how do you, let's make this practical? Mm-hmm. How do you typically, I guess. Like what are the little nuances or things that you pick up on? Um, to be like, Oh, that company has some, you know, pretty interesting bargaining power with their suppliers or with their customers or like right. just as like a I guess you could say intangible quality of a business that makes it, you know, pretty exceptional? Like what right. little cues
1: or signs allow you to sort of pick up on that? So, um some psychological things. So uh first of all, is it like a relationship based thing or is it transactional? So a transactional type thing is going to be more of a sort of cake cutting issue of just pure bargaining power between the two sides. Um, whereas a relationship based thing, there can be more of over time. Uh, figuring out ways that both uh, parties can win from it so I think that usually it's gonna be a lot easier when you have a relationship it's gonna be worth a lot more so bargaining power that's based on a longer-term relationship is helpful Um, the other thing is the exact way in which it's sold so is this uh, a direct selling thing is this like someone is selling it in uh, a for example, is it in-home sales? That would change things dramatically if you've let someone into your home to do this. Is there any sort of pre-commitment to it that you have um, before the sales even happen that you've sort of said that you're interested in it? So what do you mean like in-home sales? In-home like sales, what, what what company company comes like demonstrating a, a Kirby vacuum to you and selling it to you there or it. you know those sorts of things. And there are still companies like that. It's so like MLMs. <laughs> yeah, and that's a very powerful business model. Yeah. It's very successful, yeah. 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 Um, so that's definitely part of it. Uh, but also things about pre-commitment to it like um, if you're going to a car dealer most um, for car dealers generally mm-hmm. most of their sales or a lot of their sales are just through customer walking in yeah a customer walking in and starting to uh, talk with a salesperson is committing to a significant extent the possibility that they might buy a car sure yeah and it's very so that's where the psychological can... biases and everything comes right. in. yeah it's very different than if you were trying to sell them on a car
0: yeah um, and all the tactics that are behind it right, right. yeah like if you want to buy something for
1: $10,000 you know you're gonna offer above 10,000 and you negotiate down to 10,000. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, and a lot of research on things like because uh, I, I was looking at car recently. A big thing is that people think that they'll get a better price. A large number of people, more than half, I think, of people say that they believe they'll get a better price by negotiating directly for a car purchase. And people generally believe that for large purchases, businesses believe that for large purchases, which is good. Uh, it may be true, you know, um, if we say we're going to do, uh, you know, if you you try to haggle over it. But when you invite haggling on that sort of things, then there's ways that the other party can get accommodation on other things that aren't directly there. yeah. Um, so it's very easy then to sell you on a warranty and to sell you on other things and to sell you options on things that seem small versus what you're dealing with.
0: What's interesting is Buffett's negotiating, I guess, tactics on how he just, he names his, his price once and he never goes back on it. Yeah. You know, we've talked about before how I think even he has said how, you know, in the short term, maybe that could work against you. But, you know, in the long term, that's actually like a very good tactic for negotiating, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Yeah. And I th- think it is a very good tactic for negotiating. Because then people know like, oh, well, that's what he's going to offer. And, you know, it's either you take it or you leave it. Yeah. Because part of it is that people want to get a better deal. That's part of the psychological aspect of it is that some people will feel better if they think they got a better deal than other people did, even if they haven't gotten a better price than they otherwise would have. Yeah. They'd rather get the price that is not advertised than the same exact price if it was advertised to everybody. Yeah. They want a special deal on it. Yeah, So, um, you know, companies can get lower prices by buying a lot of things at once. They can um with so that's a possibility by buying consistent amounts you can get uh lower prices sometimes um working together in more synergistic ways may be able to lower your prices on some things yeah um but the the issue is like um how sensitive are customers to price things versus other sorts of uh issues that you might have so for instance um there's some products where the customer is likely to have to pay whatever price is sort of the going rate around there. And then there are other ones where they're likely to put it off or to buy less of it. So for some things, cutting the price of a product isn't going to be very helpful. But for others, cutting the price might generate like, what can you think of uh well for instance we talked about a cement company yeah um basically you have to pay whatever the price of cement is you'll buy the cheapest cement that's available from you locally so you'll buy the plant that's either the most efficient and or the closest um closest because of the moving costs right but the price of cement doesn't fall that much um because cement companies can't know that they can't cut the price of cement to increase building activity same thing's true with like copper wire copper wire companies know that cutting the price of copper wire doesn't actually increase the intensity of the use of copper wire enough to offset it. Whereas for other things, it would. Um, You know, if you cut prices on certain things in stores, you know that you can drive up the amount of volume that's bought from that a lot. I mean, uh, you read a book about Dollar General. Dollar General knows that they can move merchandise very quickly if they put it at like a dollar.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, speaking of another book that I've read recently, it was uh, Titan about John D. Rockefeller and mm-hmm. about his bargaining power, which yeah. I don't know if you could call it bargaining power. Or was, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it, but I mean, pretty much how his rise became a thing was he'd you know, get kickbacks from railroads and stuff and right. that, was, that enabled him to lower his prices and pretty much put everybody else out of business.
1: Right, but why did he get those kickbacks? Because of volume. Right, because he was willing to move all of his volume on. So, he, so here's the thing that Andrew's saying here. Basically, railroads had overbuilt capacity mm-hmm. so early on in the railroad boom in the u.s. there was a lot of money coming in mostly from europe a lot of capital coming in and they overbuilt and so railroads have very high fixed costs and then the amount of revenue that they can bring over it determines how much money that they make basically and also some efficiency things about how efficiently they run the railroad but the big thing is to turn their capital fast enough so if you have a certain amount of capital you're in the same situation as like a cruise ship or something once you put a billion dollars into a cruise ship you need to fill it up with passengers that's yeah. the key the same thing with the railroad you need to move a lot of traffic over it. And so if he was willing to promise a specific railroad that I will move all of my oil over your rail, mm-hmm. and at that time, that's how oil was moved, this was before the pipelines were built, um, then they're willing to cut their rates a lot because an additional marginal amount of traffic on their line brings in a huge amount of profit, and that's the key. So it sounds shocking that they would say, oh, we'll you know, have you ship for $7, where someone else has to pay 10. Yeah. But remember that bringing over their rail doesn't cost that much more to Them, So it's still incrementally a lot of money for them. So that's a way in which you have that bargaining power. And that's a problem for companies from the, so you see both sides of that. One, the bargaining power of someone who's who's able to have a huge amount of uh, purchasing or selling just volume-based bargaining that you have there. But the other side you see is the problem that you have with having huge fixed costs, a huge sunk cost, is that you get in the position that railroad, which is the position that uh, airlines always end up in, which is that they don't have bargaining power Because they're really eager to sell that extra seat. Hotels end up in that situation too. If you have too many hotels or you have too many um, airplanes, you run into the problem that you're willing to finally just say, like, uh, you know, if you'll pay me anything, I'll give this to you. I'll Uh give you this seat. I want to sell this last seat on this airplane. And those railroads were, we will take this traffic. Just, you know, if you can guarantee high volumes of traffic, then we have to keep lowering our price. Now they wanted to hide the price. Yeah, That's part of it. It wasn't just that they didn't want... Uh, it to be known that Rockefeller was getting this deal for publicity reasons, but also it would hurt their pricing on other things. So yeah. the companies always want to give big discounts for volume to someone else without that hurting their price, uh, you know, that way. And and that's true for hotels, for instance. They wanted some people to call the hotel and pay a much higher rate than they would get through like, you know, booking or mm-hmm. something like that. And I guess as the story goes for Rockefeller, he pretty
0: much forced everybody to either sell to him or they would I guess dry up themselves right. because the, his
1: prices were so cheap. Yeah yeah, and that's the other aspect of the bargaining power is that when he drove down the prices um, and other too much capacity and refining drove down prices a bunch of the other refiners ended up having being cash flow negative. Mm-hmm. They were losing money and so he was able to buy them at a really good prices. I mean, yeah. It's the same sort of thing. But that happens in other industries too. I mean actually Carnival in the cruise industry bought up a lot of distressed um, competitors over time for similar reasons. Overcapacity in the industry. They weren't as Efficient, and so they had to borrow a lot. Whereas uh, Carnival didn't. Same thing with Rockefeller. Rockefeller always had more capital than his competitors, but they ha- were expanding just as fast to try to capture the economies of scale. And so whoever's most efficient is going to be in a position where they have a lot more capital. They're able to acquire their competitors at below book. And and Rockefeller bought a lot of those refineries at below their liquidation value. Probably. Yeah, I think
0: at they said at one point he controlled like ninety percent of like America's refining business mm-hmm. or something insane like that. What is a business that comes to mind? When you think of um, maybe one that you've owned, so you could talk a little bit more about
1: it, uh, that has like uh, pretty incredible bargaining power. Uh, so I would say what I talk of is like a, I give the example of it, like I call it like a panoply business, which is when you're selling a lot of different things that a company needs from you or an individual needs from you bundled together. And some of the things in that bundle are very strong and some of them are not as strong but you can bundle them together okay so people are most familiar with this idea as like a cable bundle you know that's what they're most familiar with at home although they may also be familiar with it sometimes Microsoft may bundle some things and stuff like that but the way that it does this is like um, a good example would be uh, I, I wrote up journal academic journal publishers so things like Wiley but um, and competitors of theirs and so they have a few big academic journals that they sell and that people need to subscribe to and they sell a lot of smaller ones along with them mm-hmm. and they want that there's also companies that can take care of all your needs via a one-stop shop um, where you don't have a very big focus on each individual th- um, item because you're buying it either infrequently or it's cheap usually both Um, and those would be things like distributors like Granger and uh, MSC Industrial Direct um, which are called like MRO distributors and over time what tends to happen is that you put all of that, you consolidate those accounts more and more with just a few suppliers so Mm -hmm. they tend to push out people who don't have as big a bundle that they can sell through to you.
0: When you think about like um, incredibly sticky businesses, right and we Mm -hmm. always use the example of CSVI because we don't own it and it's a company that we did own which is a very sticky business and how an American banker they said a bank, I guess, firing CSVI would be like doing open heart surgery on somebody without putting them under anesthesia. Right. Um, do you think they, like an incredibly sticky business like CSVI, is the bargaining power more of theirs? From their point of view, or is it more from the bank? Because if let's say they have a contract with a bank, right, right. and that contract expires, and they're ne- negotiating a new contract, who mm-hmm. has more of the bargaining power? Is it a company like CSVI, where if you if they pull out their business from a bank, you know you pretty much just pulled the lifeline, I guess you could say, or is it more of the bank has more bargaining power? in the negotiations? Is it from CSI's point or is
1: it a bank, would you say? It's, it's a good point. Does so, that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, so computer services is a core processor. And so this would be true of all the other core processors. Jack Henry, Pfizer, all those. So um, I, if you look historically at the returns, Uh, It's the company that provides the business service rather than the business. I mean, you can do this pretty easily. What companies are more successful, advertising agencies or the companies who employ them, ad agencies? Who's more successful, law firms or the companies that employ them? Law firms. Who's more successful, accounting firms or the firms that employ them? Accounting firms. Yeah. Over and over again, you see that. You know, uh, business software things. Business software is more successful. So, um, in theory... They think that they have a lot of power. The client, because they think that um, they, the client, being the banks in this example, yeah, because yeah. they because there's a long sales cycle to get the business in the first place. Yeah, they're very eager to get them. Uh, And they put a lot of effort into the sales to get them and so it does always seem to people I mean I wrote up about ad agencies and stuff and people were always saying that the client has a lot of power that they could um, Switch and that they get pitched a lot of different business that they could bring in all these different agencies And that they could have basically each of them pitch ideas to them all this and they have all this power which may be true, but if you just look at the returns, it's not true. Um, All of those companies end up that you use for your services in those ways that get integrated with your business in a big way uh, to make more money off of you. Uh, there are a lot of other choices that they can have, sure. and it's a big disruption to you in a much bigger way than it ever is for them losing a client. Now, there's some exceptions. There are some companies that rely heavily on one client, but generally, these companies have pretty small reliance on a single client. Like um, Computer Services doesn't have individual clients that add up to a lot of their business. They're small banks. Yeah, um, you know, Omnicom or something. I think their biggest account maybe is 150th of their total revenue um so it it can be all of your advertising or a huge part of your advertising usually you give some to other agencies but um it's a small part of their overall business, usually, but yeah, if it was, if that wasn't the case, if you were using a law firm where your billings were making up more than half of their um, total business or something, yes, you would have a lot of power in that sure. relationship. Absolutely, sure.
0: Got it. Cool. Well, that is the end of the podcast. If you are interested in meeting up with Jeff and myself in New York between November eleventh through the fifteenth. Maybe we're there right now. Reach out to invest at focus We would love to meet up with you if you're interested and um, potentially become an investor either through the manager accounts or the new fund. Uh, if you want to learn more information on that, go to focuscompounding.com, click that invest with us link, and you'll see our presentation uh, that we put up there as well. But if you're an avid listener of the podcast, um, I'm sure you know the way that we think. But we'd love to meet up with you. Invest at focuscompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. Remember, rating and review goes a very long way for us. We're trying to hack the algorithm on the podcast. The more rating and reviews you have, the more it puts our podcast out to other people. So we're having a lot of fun creating content for you guys. And if you think that, uh, you know, or if you enjoy the work that we're doing, or you benefited from us, you want to, I guess, give back in a way to us, that's the way to do it. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself here today. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.